Welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm Richard Gottlieber. And I'm Brad Garropy. And this week, we're going to be talking about serverless, everything about serverless. And it's kind of a misconception, let's put it that way, because it's not serverless. So if it's not serverless, then where does it run? So serverless is kind of one of those magical computing terms where it sounds great. And if you don't know what it is, it's really easy to say. It's kind of like the cloud, right? What's the cloud? It just means it's somebody else's computer. Serverless is basically the same thing. It's somebody else's server. I like to think about it as less servers is what you have to have if you're using serverless, right? Because you end up writing small little functions that run on somebody else's computer. So I guess to start things off, Brad, have you written any code that is serverless? Yes, definitely. Uh, I've written lots of it and I've used lots of different serverless providers and I've used lots of different uh, companies that wrap the big serverless providers and uh, even a lot of the things that we do at work are serverless as well. That's awesome. So I guess before we get too deep into talking about our experience with serverless, maybe let's take a step back and walk through the history of serverless. We could start with like what the world was before serverless functions. You would have to purchase a hosted server or a managed server from somebody like DigitalOcean or Linode that stays up and runs 24-7 with your application on it. And then you'd have to, you know, monitor your application and if it crashes you'd have to restart it things like that what serverless aims to do is to say hey look you don't need this thing running 24 7 you don't have to be paying for 24 7 compute time for this you only need it when a request comes in so serverless aim to just take an invocation of your application and try to commoditize that and that's how they came up with the word serverless function because it essentially just runs an HTTP request handler as a function when somebody speaks to your service. What's your take on it? Like, how would you define it? Yeah, no. So I think that the way that you define it there is, is a good way to think of like where the term serverless came from, because it doesn't mean that there's not a server out there. There's not a computer running it, right? What that means is that you as the end user don't have to have your own server. You know, so like we started out like in the ye olden days of actually having to like purchase a piece of hardware to sit in a data center somewhere. And then we got to the cloud, right? Where you could just like rent time on somebody's massive server and you'd have like a virtual server on there probably. I mean, if you were a big enough scale, you'd have your own actual physical server. But most of the time, like what you're talking about with DigitalOcean, it's just a small little slice of an actual server that you're renting, but you're paying for that 24 seven. It's always there for you. It's always ready to go. Somebody hits that uh, endpoint, like an API or something like that. It'll respond because it's up and running 24-7. Inner serverless, like you said, now you don't have to have that server. You don't pay for that server. You're just paying for the actual compute time, right? And I think, too, one of the most powerful things about this is scaling, so, you know, you do something awesome and it ends up on the front page of Hacker News and suddenly like a million people come to check out your cool new uh, Texas country API and like country is taking off and it's the biggest thing ever. And 
in the old way of doing things, your server would crash because it would just have so much traffic coming to it. You'd be out of luck, right? Unless you had some sort of crazy scaling paradigm where like it would spin up actual new servers with like a Docker image and all this other like DevOps work behind the scenes. Right. That's kind of like assuming that you know about Docker and Kubernetes, load balancing and scaling. Those are all tough problems that you had to solve yourself as a developer uh, to handle lots of traffic to your application. Yeah, 100%. The way serverless does it, right? Go on. And then like that's even using like the cloud, right, where you could actually scale. Before that, it'd be like, welp. Uh, Brad, it's time to requisition some new servers and get them hooked up in the data center because you got popular. Oh, well, you're not popular anymore because nobody came to your website after it didn't work the first time. So serverless, it's just running those actual like function calls, right? Like the serverless functions. And so it can just scale infinitely super fast because all you're saying is, hey, I need more time right now. And as long as you have things set up with whatever provider you're using, you're golden. It's going to just continue to scale. And then when the traffic drops off, no big deal. It's not like you have a bunch of servers sitting there doing nothing. You just aren't using compute time. And that's fantastic. Scaling now becomes the provider's problem. And maybe this is a good segue into like, what providers are there for serverless functions? I think really we've got the big three are the base. So you've got Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform and Microsoft Azure are our three baseline, you know, serverless function providers. But we also see a ton of companies popping up that are essentially wrappers around them to make it simpler to use and easier to integrate with things like your GitHub repo. Yeah, and that that is a very good point because when you start looking at places where you can execute serverless functions and like create them, you know, you'll see like Netlify, for sell, and they have serverless functions available, but those big three that you mentioned, they're the ones who are actually behind the scenes going to be hosting those functions, right? I'm pretty sure that Netlify uses AWS. I don't know about Vercel. I think they might as well. I think so too. I think AWS out of the big three providers is kind of winning that war. Uh, they got into it at the earliest I would probably say Azure is coming in second and Google's, uh, you know, bringing up the rear in third place. Yeah. So when it comes to serverless functions, do you only think backend when you think serverless or do you think frontend and backend now? What are your thoughts there? When I typically think of a serverless function, I typically think of it's providing an API, but there are tons of creative uses for serverless functions. For instance, uh, I know a lot of folks that generate their social preview images using a serverless function. So if you put in like a, the URL to like your image creator, it'll it'll be smart enough to like, you know, pull some text or grab a template and then populate and render an HTML page and take a screenshot and send you back the image from that screenshot. Like it's pretty wild what you can do in these little handy dandy functions. Yeah, I actually do that at build time on my website with a little uh, plugin where it generates those images at build time, which is great. That's definitely a great use for it. I think too, for like scheduled tasks, I think that you actually do this, right? Don't you have some scheduled tasks that you run with like GitHub actions? Yeah, I do. Um, 
essentially it's a GitHub action that runs on like a, a cron job. And what it does is it hits a web hook. So I, I think I actually sidestep a serverless function. No, that's not true. That's not true. I have serverless functions that automatically post things to Twitter for me. So this is like, you know, share a YouTube video or tweet a song for my daily Texas country project. These are serverless functions that are invoked, hit a couple different APIs, and then ultimately send tweet out at the end of the function. Yeah. And I actually use a um, Lambda function written in Go from like a while ago. I did this a long time ago. And man, serverless stuff has gotten much more user friendly. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but like anytime I go into AWS, like the actual Amazon console, I get nervous because I'm afraid I'm going to like misclick something and then they're going to be like, hey, congratulations, you owe us $10,000. Um, but I actually have a cron job that runs this little Go script that deletes my old tweets. And so my tweets are only, I think, three weeks old. And after that, they disappear. And I know like it's the internet, they're always there. But I just like the idea that like Twitter is kind of this, it's called ephemeral Twitter. I read about it on a free code camp post a while ago talking about how comments and thoughts that you have and share on Twitter are meant to be like present time. And so kind of putting a, it's uh, granted it's the internet, right? So like everything is always backed up, but putting a little bit of a filter on that so that your timeline is only like recent things is just kind of a cool way to think about it. I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of neat to like keep things present only. And then that way you don't end up with like this, like, you know, horde of old stuff, but maybe that's, that's just me trying cool. not to I've, be a hoarder. I've never heard of that idea before. That's pretty cool. It's kind of how I view like streams. Streams are only around for two weeks and then they're gone. So it's, it's, it's ephemeral. And I, I've never applied that to tweets, but I, I agree with you. I've uh, actually authored serverless functions directly inside of Google cloud platform and AWS. Like when I was first getting into it, I was like, let's not add any more complexity. Let's go right to the source and author it right here. And oh my God, like <laughs> that was so frustrating, you know, because you're not in your editor. You don't have all the, the things that you like. You're also like just having to write and deploy raw, let's say JavaScript. Like at the end of the day, you don't have like a build process or anything like that. So you have to write exactly what's getting put out there. And I think that's exactly why these like, wrapper companies started showing up that was just like you know gcp google cloud platform aws amazon web services they're just complicated so we should just make it easier for you and instead you just have to commit to like a git repo and tell us that there are functions here and we will deploy them for you yeah there's definitely something to be said about the business model of we'll make it easy for you to do this thing the thing that blows my mind, honestly, is that like most of these companies, their free tier is just ridiculous. Like it's so encouraging as a like side project. I don't know what to call it. Connoisseur. Well, a side project like it inspires <laughs> you to do more side projects when like you don't have to pay to just yeah. mess around. Right. Like it's like, hey, uh, you know, like Netlify, Vercel, they're, they're you know, all of them are like, hey, come and play. It's free. If you want to turn this into a legitimate business, yeah, it's going to cost you some money. But like, if you want to just have some fun and learn how to use all this stuff, have at it, man. Here you go, which is awesome. I don't know. I think that that kind of business model is just really cool and inspiring 
as a creator of random side projects that often end up going nowhere, but I learn stuff along the way. Yeah, it, it does feel like it gives you superpowers. I think we talked about this back in our free hosting episode, just how much you can do for free as a web dev and actually put it out there live for other folks to use. But pricing is one of the primary differences, I think, between your core providers and your, I keep calling them wrapper companies, but but Netlify, Vercel, things like that, because those core cloud companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, are going to be charging like per compute time, like just for what you use. And that's, that's great. But when you start using these wrapper companies, the Netlify's, the Vercel's, they shift to tiered pricing. And so it's not as good of a deal at the end of the day if you wind up breaking out of the free tier. The free tier is great because, I mean, for all my stuff, I'm not even coming close to those limits. But when you finally break out of that free tier, you're probably going to be a little bit less cost efficient rather than if you were just going to like raw AWS. But you can't argue with the ease of use that they provide for authoring and deploying and managing your serverless functions. Right. And I definitely think there is something to be said for that, where I kind of think the paradigm of like, start where it's easy. And then if you need to optimize later is a good way to go about it, because you definitely could save money in the long run if you optimize and go straight to the provider. Right. But the upfront cost of that may not be worth it. And this is why you're seeing positions open up at companies that are like cloud infrastructure engineers or a lot of times they're still called DevOps engineers, but what that really translates to is, please manage our AWS account for us. We need to understand how we can set limitations on pricing and security and authentication and all these different things. And they're like, they just call it DevOps now. And we have two folks on our team at Adobe that they do this full time for all of our like microservices and backend and, and scheduled jobs and all those things. Yeah. So as we, we mentioned like the scheduled tasks and then like the APIs, some other things that I've used serverless for, like this is more like backend stuff, obviously, but you can do like transformations, right? So if you have a image that's uploaded and you want to create like several different versions of it, you can have that done with a serverless function just on the backend kind of asynchronously, which is a great use for that. You can also, the idea of like different queues or topics that you can have, like subscribe to these functions where like stuff comes in and it churns through them. And then when it gets done, all the functions shut down. That's another thing you can do with it. I do think in my mind, at least serverless also kind of pushes developers to think about smaller functions, right? Serverless used to have the problem of kind of a slow startup time, like a long time to like boot up your function. So the response time wasn't always as fast. I know that's basically a thing of the past now with like, they have like sub millisecond, you know, like hot load times and stuff. And it's just ridiculous how fast that's gotten. But given that kind of change, it's now very easy to have functions that do one thing and that's it. And so you can write very small functions. And this also makes serverless like really good for rapid deployment of new functions, right? Because you come up with a new function, you can put it out there in production 
and it doesn't touch anything else, right? And so you can make sure it works before you start integrating it into your front end, for example, which is, I think, also something that's like very powerful because you don't have to like take anything down. You don't have to do like an official deploy. Like I remember, man, I remember back when I first started working, you'd have like, you know, install night. Oh, install nights were the worst, man. Cause it'd be like, well, we're going to start after business hours and let's hope we're done by midnight if nothing goes wrong. And then inevitably something goes wrong and it's like five o'clock in the morning. You're like, oh man, the East coast is about to wake up. We got to get this fixed. Like what's wrong. (laughs) So I don't know, like all these little things just make me so happy with how, how technology is progressing. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that you kind of approach it from like a very small granular function um, I've actually heard use cases for the opposite side. Like, for instance, you could run an entire GraphQL server in a serverless function. Because it's a single endpoint, you have access to an entire API. Now, where this becomes more powerful, in my opinion, is if it's a federated GraphQL server. So you're hitting a single endpoint, a single serverless function that accesses your slash GraphQL endpoint, but then fans requests out to different microservices to resolve the graph come back and then hand you a response or like the other day i wrote um, a cloudflare worker which is just another serverless application platform that i threw up a little router in the serverless function and so it just says hey if this is a get request do this but if this is a post request do this other thing so that you know you don't have to like write those switch cases yourself just put a little router up there and you can almost view it as a mini application in that sense or a mini API. So you're right. It's like it is it is scoping it down, but you can still do more than just one tiny thing if you want to. Uh, the only real limitations on serverless functions are, I think, like a, a size limit in megabytes. Can't remember exactly what that is. Um, and then a, a runtime. So I think they're limited to like 10 or 15 seconds runtime with like, I think it was like 50 megs of of deployed code something like that yeah which is both seems small but is also like fairly large as long as you're breaking stuff down and like 15 seconds seems like nothing but in computer time is it an eternity so (laughs) it is yeah yeah but you could be processing like right they scale infinitely so you could be processing a ton a ton of stuff um just depends and now there's this notion of things like background functions or long running tasks in all these cloud providers, which I don't totally know what happens differently architecturally, but they just remove a lot of these barriers of like, now it can run for 10 minutes instead of 10 seconds. And I guess they just maybe run it on a different machine that that is like, it can have a longer startup time and more dedicated CPU resources and memory resources, something like that. I will say though, the smaller you break down your serverless functions and the more you view them as like these little single use things, you've now created another problem for yourself. And, and I don't know if you've run into this, but let's say you have 50 small little functions. They now all have to be versioned. You kind of have to treat them like an API endpoint where if you make a breaking change, it could affect many different other functions that rely on it. So now you've kind of created a dependency graph of tiny little serverless endpoint functions. Whereas if you had like a monolith, let's say uh, you would deploy everything and it would, it would, you know, still be a breaking change. Sure. But 
you kind of only have one entry point into it. But as as you grow more in your serverless architecture, dependency trees get larger. No, that's a very valid point where you definitely do need to, I don't know what the best way to keep track of that kind of dependency tree would be. But yeah, you could definitely create a mess of spaghetti for yourself. 100%. Flip side, if you wanted to deploy a new endpoint, you could just deploy it and then slowly migrate things over. Exactly. To it. So like it doesn't you, you don't have to create a breaking change. You can create a new completely new function and then slowly pivot to using that new function. But yeah, keeping track of like what's been migrated over and everything. There's a reason we have PMs, I guess, right? Like Trello for the win. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's definitely a good good call out for sure. So what different like tools and frameworks have you used to write serverless functions? I assume you you don't only just author your code directly in AWS. No. So I've, I have done that, right? Like I wrote that Go program and got it up on AWS. And dude, that whole process was really weird because you had to like zip it up and then yeah. like lo- upload the zip file to AWS yes. and then like hope Super it ran. Weird. I don't know. It was not a huge fan, but it works and I don't touch it now. Um, <laughs> so I've done that. Um, I've used like GitHub Actions with their cron thing to actually query an API for Walt Disney World wait times and log those to a text file in the GitHub repo itself just to kind of like track how they changed over time. That was written in Dino, Dino, Dino. I don't Ooh, know, man. Sweet. So yeah. uh, written in TypeScript, let's be honest. Um, but that was that was pretty cool. I will say like that thing, the cron scheduler for GitHub Actions gave me a lot of grief. They work great on like commit and everything like that, but the cron system seems to be flaky when you push the envelope of how frequently you're allowed to use it. Um, I've also used like in Netlify some of their built-in functions, which the way they have it set up where you just like throw a function in the folder and then you can call it is crazy it makes it so simple to do serverless functions like you don't even have to think about it there's like (laughs) write a little bit of code throw it in a function put it in the right directory and you're done seems good like (laughs) i don't know how about you what what have you what's your serverless adventure been I, I have started with raw AWS and raw Google Cloud Platform. I haven't touched Azure. I always found the Microsoft stuff to be confusing. At least once I found where I knew I needed to go in AWS, it all made sense. And to be honest, Google Cloud Platform was probably the easiest to navigate around. But uh, really, I don't use any of that stuff directly anymore. I use uh, Next.js API routes, which get deployed through Vercel directly to AWS for you. And that's that's the same notion as Netlify functions, where a single folder is dedicated to your serverless functions and Netlify and Vercel will handle the deploying them for you. And what's interesting about Next.js is that they're presented as Next.js API routes, but I wonder if outside of Next.js, you could just create a Vercel like deployment 
with a folder that has functions that get deployed as serverless functions. I'll have to investigate there. So it's weird to think that it's tied to a, a front-end framework versus a deployment platform. That being said, Gatsby came out with cloud functions as well. And so now Gatsby takes over the API folder in your project and takes anything in there and deploys it as a serverless function. I found that out the hard way because I had an API folder that was like just little wrappers and helpers for API endpoints that I had to hit and it broke my build. So they kind of just kicked that one out the door and didn't, didn't really think about how it would affect people. That's rough. But how did you end up figuring out that was the problem? Were the, the errors in the build sufficient or nope. Google to it, they were, rescue? They were terrible. I, I was sitting there rubber ducking to another engineer and I'm like, what's up with this API folder in Gatsby? It's like it thinks it's something else. And then it clicked. I was like, didn't they release cloud functions? And like I had to kind of come up with that link. And then I went searching and there's like only two references in their documentation where it's like, by the way, we're going to use the API directory for this and you can't configure it. So kind of rough. Wow. I think with Netlify, you can in their YAML tell them if you want to use a different folder, but they by default yes. just grab a functions folder at the root level, if I'm remembering. Yes, that's, that's right. right. So I'd be curious to see how long it is until you can configure that in Gatsby because I feel like that's going to be coming soon. <laughs> it's got to be. Now, one of the things that some of these hosting platforms do for you that solves a major problem in serverless is local development, right? Serverless, it's, it's getting really, really easy to deploy actual functions, but uh, we, we're kind of taking for granted or not really thinking about like, well, what if I want to test the code that I'm writing? So Netlify has... Netlify Dev, which I use for everything. Uh, not only does it build your website and run it locally, it also takes into account your functions and it builds and runs local versions of them as well, including pulling any like protected environment variables out of your Netlify configuration and loading them up. So you don't have to have local.env files anymore. You define your environment variables in Netlify. They're safe. You're not going to accidentally show them on stream. And then you run Netlify dev and it takes care of all that for you. And so that's the best, that's the best tool that I've found for, for writing and testing serverless functions locally. I just check in my ENV files to GitHub to make sure they're safe. So I don't know about <laughs> you, but no, don't ever do that. That's a joke. It's a bad idea. Don't ever check those in. If you do check them in, you're going to learn a lot about GitHub and how to get rid of your Git history. <laughs> Not that I would have ever done that before, but it's, it's happened to the best of us. You can Always. undo it <laughs> after you change all your keys. So no, it's definitely a good point though about local developments. And that was like a, definitely a struggle, right? Like just like I mentioned about the AWS thing, it's like you upload the zip file and you're like, hope it works. <laughs> I don't know the tooling, man, the tooling just keeps impressing me so much. Like the work that all these different places are doing just to make, make my life easier. I love it. And I don't even pay them anything. And they're just like, Hey Richard, we want to make your life easier. And I'm like, you keep doing that. Cause you guys are awesome. I think it comes down to the fact that you're, you're writing your front end code and then you switch to another folder inside of that same directory. 
and now you're writing backend code and nothing has changed about about your editor about your typescript settings about anything and then you with literally the same command that starts your front end it also starts your back end and so i i'm kind of stealing this from jason langsdorf but he released an article recently about like serverless functions are superpowers for front end devs you know you're you don't have to go down the rabbit hole of how do i deploy a server and get a service up and running and and use a process management tool to keep it up and running and scale it just to like enable some functionality for myself you, you get to write the same language front and back in the same project and all of a sudden you can do anything and what's even better is Netlify specifically has tons of templates for serverless functions. They have a template to get a GraphQL server up and running, a template to get an Express server up and running, a template for TypeScript, a template to integrate with Unsplash, you name it. And then there's a ton of community ones. There's like a single Netlify CLI command that just allows you to scaffold out serverless functions to your heart's content. And it does all the things you need to do. Yeah. Part of me having been like in a DevOps type role in the past, think that's why you have these roles that are termed DevOps and they really just mean like manage our cloud infrastructure and costs and setups for us, please. Because a lot of that backend stuff is getting a lot easier. And I don't think that like backend jobs are going to go away. I think, you know, at, at like large company scale, you're going to have to have the optimizations and stuff like that, that you only get when like you live your life doing backend code, creating APIs, stuff like that. But to your point, it has like supercharged front end developers where you now can easily kind of just span the stack a little bit and go into the backend world without having to worry about like, well, how do I set up a Docker image? How do I get all this stuff running on my computer, you know, and spend like two days just trying to get some stuff up on your computer to do your job, you can just write the same basic language a little bit differently and you're good to go. Yeah, like, and that that totally rings true because over the past couple of days, I've been struggling to use Docker and install Magento and do PHP stuff just so I can write some JavaScript to change something in the front end UI. And it, it just took me like four days to figure out all this stuff, API keys. And I, I had to like monkey patch things because the PHP was failing when you ran an install script. And at the end of the day, I just wish it was as easy as write a serverless function, you know? And I think for all my personal projects, that's what I use to be productive. Yeah, I definitely, I feel your pain about some of that backend setup for sure. Okay, so as we're coming to a close here, I just want to share like the coolest serverless function and the most convenient serverless function that I've used. If you've ever had to do OAuth and authenticate to a particular service using OAuth, it takes a couple back and forths to kind of get that authentication done. And uh, the, the king himself, Jason Langsdorf, again, created this serverless function that you just hit and it hands you a Twitch token. So I was trying to write a bunch of Twitch integrations. I needed to be able to authenticate to Twitch on the back end. And this is actually for that really cool um, like live notification on my website. When I go live on Twitch, my website will show this little flashy thing that says I'm live. And Jason Langsdorf just totally solved that problem for me, all wrapped up in a simple little serverless function. And 
at the end of the day, he's like, here's the end point. Go buck wild. And I love that. It just enables us to move faster. Yeah. On that note too, like just to continue on the Jason love train, his, uh, social image sharing like a little function is fantastic. And we can put that in the show notes too. He has a whole article on like how he designed it and everything pro tip TLDR scroll to the bottom. If you just care about the node package, but it's a really good read. Like I was going through it, like doing it all myself, like typing it all out and then you get to the bottom. He's like, and you can just NPM install this package. And I'm like, Oh man. So, you know, I ended up doing that, but it's an awesome little package and it works really well to make those social images. So if any of you out there have an awesome function that you'd like to share, hit us up on Twitter. You can find our handles in the show notes, or you could join our discord and share with the community. That'd be awesome. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe in your podcast player as well. And thanks for tuning in to web dev weekly. We'll see you next week.